This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Welcome to episode 23 of the Mad, Bad and Damn Right Strange Showcase, where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work through the 1001 film introduction to culture and obscure cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Damn Right Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Edward Jones, from the Depths DVD Hell, and tonight we have a surreal double bill as we look at Nicholas Roeg's acclaimed horror thriller, Don't Look Now, before heading off to backcountry for a nightmarish search for the American Dream and Terry Gillingham's adaptation of the classic Hunter S. Thompson novel, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But joining me in the studio this evening is the French Toast Sunday assistant editor, let alone a regular, regular contributor to their podcast as well as the Lamcast. It, of course, gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show Jess Manzo. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for obviously coming back. Um, obviously, the first time you came on, we were discussing The Brood and Magnolia. Yep. Um, this week is... Uh, Something a little different, something a little more surreal this time around. So. Yep. Thank you for obviously uh, picking the films that you did. Yeah, um, they were both movies that I wanted to watch for a while, so yeah. I thought it was a good excuse to. Yeah, I mean, Don't Look Now is a film that is one of those films everyone says you should watch, but of course I've completely failed until now to actually watch it. So <laughs> be interesting to see what you made of it, especially if it's your first watch as well. So. Before we obviously get into the two films this evening, I just obviously uh, have to ask really, how do you feel that the summer season is sort of playing out, being obviously a mainstream cinema blogger? Um, well, in theaters, there, I've um, seen some pretty good things, I think. A lot of um, popcorn-type movies that, like, I know people thought it was um, hit or miss, but I really enjoyed Jurassic World, and I saw... Um, some other stuff like Magic Mike XXL, which I thought was pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I even saw a little, uh, Sundance movie that was playing in my mainstream theater, which was pretty cool, which was Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which got a lot of attention at Sundance. So it was kind of cool that it was in a, like a big blockbuster theater and not just in our little art house theater in Baltimore. Well, it's interesting you should obviously mention about um, as one of the smaller pictures on Sundance now getting sort of more theatrical release. Um, another film which I believe it was this year that it uh, was shown at Sundance, and that's Rose McGowan's Dawn. I don't know if you've seen it uh, yet. I haven't seen it, have you? Uh, yes, I watched it just before we came on. It's on YouTube, so it's one of the easier shorts to get hold of. But I don't know if you've obviously been following Rose McGowan recently, but she's sort of really come out against the industry and she's making a lot of I don't know what to say claims, but she's really sort of exposing a lot of sexism and discrimination within the industry. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, like, her just being out there with it. She's, for some reason, I don't know why she's suddenly chosen to make this move. 
uh, whether she's certainly decided she's had enough, but certainly she was on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, and I would certainly recommend anyone to listen to that because she pretty much goes with both barrels. Um, it's one of the few times I've heard Ellis been left sort of struggling to get a word in. Um, <laughs> but no, certainly she makes a lot of interesting points, and uh, certainly when she's like commenting on the on the set the situation within the gay community where she feels that now that we're in the situation where as she puts it the gay uh, community have sort of won their war that they should be turning their attention to helping the more other sort of communities such as like more women's lib or helping sort of transgenderism uh, become sort of more established and accepted in society so I don't know what it is but she's suddenly for myself become suddenly a more interesting person and Dawn again is sort of adding to that it's a little dark movie it's only about 15 minutes long but it's certainly one I don't want to ruin for anyone but I would certainly recommend checking it out it's an interesting directorial debut and it's interesting the fact she's now obviously trying to make it as a director rather than just as an actress cool yeah that sounds worth checking out she's she's kind of been like off the map for a while Mm. she hasn't been doing much so maybe that's part of the reason is because people she's a little more outspoken about things Again, it just seems that everyone's suddenly either in a scandal at the moment or being outspoken about something. Um, yeah. Just recently had Gary Oldman decide to play uh, Career Roulette by coming out with some questionable comments about, again, about the industry. Bill Cosby, again, has fallen from grace with... Again, he's he's now... Is he openly admitted to um, to to giving women sensitives or... Yeah, I mean, he admitted it. It wasn't like I mean, it was in a le- in a like closed file that was open. So it wasn't like he necessarily was like, "Oh, I'm going to be upfront with everyone." The fact that he admitted it just happened to get released to the public. Yeah, but it's his word, so he can't deny it now. It's always so frustrating, especially when you have someone that you've grown up with, um, and sort of in many ways has formed that sort of idol status for them to suddenly fall from grace and so spectacularly. But the complete lack of... I would, I would say he doesn't even seem sort of sorry for what, what he has done, where he's actually a missing two, which seems to be the worst thing. He feels, in many ways, he's coming across these very untouchable. And I remember that... I'm trying to remember whose podcast again it wasn't. I think it was uh, Mark Maron's podcast. And uh, they were saying that he was there making jokes about the whole situation. Yeah, yeah, in his stand-up, he was making jokes, like, after everything was out, and so he obviously, he admitted that he did it, and then went on to make jokes about it, so it's not weighing on his uh, uh, conscience, obviously. No. And, again, with the Gary Oldman situation, I think, do we know what's happening with that? It sort of had the one article uh, in Playboy, and then that seems to be it. It sort of blew up one day, and then nothing's been said about it since, so... Yeah, I mean, that isn't, hasn't really been, like, heavily followed, I feel like. Like, it just kind of went, came and went under the radar. Yeah. Almost. I really hope it's just something that's been misconstrued, because I really hate to, like, give up, like, Leon and just his back catalogue of films that I've enjoyed. Yeah. Um, if it does obviously turn out that he is a racist and <laughs> um, discriminatory about other sort of races and that, it would be such a shame to obviously lose that large chunk of, obviously, my... Uh, film film loving past really but yeah i guess it just goes back to the whole idea of if you 
can look past someone's personal life to enjoy their work still, mm. which I think it depends on the person and what's been done and what's been said and how you personally feel about that sort of thing. But it's definitely an interesting topic. Yeah. And it's, it's all in all, it has just been kind of a strange summer in, in a way. You obviously had all these scandals coming out. Um, and in a way, you've also had the return of the event movie. Um, certainly with the likes of uh, the new Magic Mike. Uh, is it XXL or is it Triple XL? Uh, yeah, just Double XL. I keep forgetting how many X's are in this title. <laughs> I'm guessing. I'm guessing the third movie in the Magic Mike trilogy <laughs> will be XXL. But it's it's sort of like if they go that way, if they do a third one, it's like what's left to show. You've got to give your audience some reason to return. Um, they all they have left is Full Frontal. That's the only thing they have left to offer. So that would that would certainly earn them the triple XL title. Yeah. I mean, I have to ask, in the States, is it playing as an event movie as over here in the UK? It's definitely, the- a, it's definitely a thing where it's like like women, like kind of a rallying movie for women to yeah. all go see, the, like see it together. And it, honestly, the movie plays as if you're at a live show at certain points. So when I saw it, the women in the theaters were, like, really vocal and cheering, and they just seemed like they were at a live event, which yeah. was actually a pretty cool experience, I thought. Yeah. I mean, I have yet, I've yet to see it. I've seen the first one, mm-hmm. and I remember sitting, sitting in the theater, and, like, a lot of people around me seemed to be quite disappointed it wasn't the movie they thought they paid for. Yeah, it was a lot more dramatic. And the fact that they brought back Kevin Nash, the most uncoordinated <laughs> big man in the world. I mean, I'm surprised that they brought him back. I thought that he would have been like, they would have learned from the mistakes and like cut him from the second one. But again, there he is. <laughs> yeah, he, he is funny, though. Like, he just has, he, he seems so out of place mm. that it's comical. I mean, he, I mean, how old is he now? I think he's like, he's got to be in his late 50s. Yeah, I would think so. He's, I mean, he's certainly got to be getting on there. So it's really bizarre to see him amongst all these sort of token, um, attractive pin-up male sort of characters. Yeah. Like, you always got Channing Tatum, who's sort of the real backbone of the Magic Mike franchise, should we say. Cause it's obviously guaranteed now that we're going to have a third one. They won't just leave it as just two films. I think whether it's going to be next year or a couple of years down the line, I think there is going to be a third one. There's just too much money to be made in peddling uh, male flesh so yeah plus they, they make these movies very cheap like the first movie only had a seven million dollar budget mm. and this one had a 14 million dollar budget which is super low for a movie that you know is going to make money yeah about to say well male nudity like dialogue it doesn't really cost a lot to shoot so <laughs> as long as Shannon tatum i think and the other cast like keep themselves in shape they don't like let themselves go now yeah. Then we should be fine. But, I mean, what's your feelings on Channing Tatum? I personally like him. I think he's very underrated as an actor. He sort of gets cast as just being, like, another pretty boy actor. But I feel he has got some depth. I mean, when you look at things like Foxcatcher especially, um, it showed that he has got a little more depth to him than just being, you know, another pretty boy actor. I agree with you completely. I thought he was fantastic in Foxcatcher. And I've actually been rooting for him for a long time. Because I saw him way back when um, the first thing I saw on him was the Amanda Bynes comedy, She's the Man. Oh, right. So you're going way back then. Yeah, which is admittedly pretty goofy. And his acting is not very good in it at all. 
But at the same time, I was like, this guy has an appeal. And it's not it's not looks necessarily. It's just he has a charm to him. And over time, I feel like he I was just like waiting for a movie that would really showcase that. And I feel like it was probably 21 Jump Street that really made people turn around on him. And they didn't see him as this dumb, like bad actor, because yeah. in 21 Jump Street, he's so funny and he's so charming. Like ever since that, I feel like people have mostly turned around on him and appreciate him more. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think for myself, it was somewhere between fighting and uh, the first G.I. Joe. As much as he hates G.I. Joe, I really enjoyed G.I. Joe. Um, and for me, that was sort of like marked him out as someone who was worth watching. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I feel that he's going to be one of those actors we are going to be discussing sort of further down the line um, as someone who's yet to come into their own. Kind of like a Jake Gyllenhaal or Matthew McConaughey. I think he's yet to make his best films. Oh, yeah, I can I can totally see that. And it'd be interesting, obviously, once he breaks away from what he's doing at the moment and tries to do something a bit different, maybe a little more risque. I think Foxcatcher was sort of like, would have been his sort of lead-in, but at the moment he's sort of plenty more safe and obviously he's in that position where he can still do that at the moment, so. But, yeah. I'm excited to see where he goes next. He seems like he really likes or has fun like doing what he does. And I think that translates in the movies he's in. But then in like a movie like Foxcatcher, he completely held his own, I thought, in a mm. strong cast. So unquestionably. And obviously you write for French Toast Sunday, you're the assistant editor over there. And how long has the site been running for? It's about five years, is it? Yep. Um, this past March was five years, which is pretty insane. Um, that's a long time, but it's a lot of fun. It it's totally sped by because it's it's fun and it's all about watching movies. So that and talking with friends and that sort of thing. So it's very enjoyable. I was have to ask because recently this week we saw the closure too main film sites we both the dissolve and kill panda kill uh both closed their doors this week so i mean is there a secret to longevity within the sort of film blogging community uh well i think the secret to longevity is keeping up your passion and keeping up ha how much fun you're having but the thing about those sites closing um the dissolve is more one that i read regularly but those sites could go on as, like, a non-money-making venture. Like, French Show Sunday, we're not making... We're not, like, as far as, like, a business model as The Dissolve, I'm sure, was. Yeah. Um, so, if you want to have a movie blog for fun and, you know, maybe make enough money to, like, cover your costs of, you know, running the site and whatnot then I'm sure you can go as long as you're having fun with it. But it is kind of scary to see that something that seemed like a sure win, like the Dissolve, didn't make it. That is definitely disheartening. I know. It's, anyways, again, it was uh, brought up in, I think, the points you were just raising earlier. We were raising Roger Ebert's site uh, this morning. I was reading and They were saying, basically, that we're no longer really in sort of the, the sort of territory where you can sort of have a site without having another, another sort of job to support um, your site. You can't just sort of run a film film site on its own merit, um, especially if you want to be one of those sites that sort of stands out and doesn't 
just do press junkets and promote things in order to just generate hits such as which you obviously see with sites like Jobo's Movie Emporium and Ain't It Cool News, sites which I personally feel lack any sort of passion, any sort of spirit that obviously you have with sites like yourself and French Toast Sunday and some of like the smaller sites like To The Escape Hatch or Life Versus Film, you know, just to name a couple of land members there. Um, where you obviously, I think you obviously have that passion, but again, these are, um, these are sites obviously where they're not there to generate money. It's just really just to promote the uh, a passionate love of film. Yeah, and I mean, it's definitely fun. It's definitely a labor of love. So I can't complain about that. I mean, getting paid to do that would be the dream. Mm. But at the same time, it seems more and more so that getting paid to write about film is almost becoming a thing of the past, like a lot of other professions, since the internet just makes it so much easier to get information. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I mean, before it used to be a, an issue to try and get published anywhere. Now it's you can get published anywhere. It's just getting yeah. paid that's the hard part. But, exactly. I mean, the thing I love about Fringe Store Sunday especially is while you obviously, at your heart, are a mainstream movie site, you're still constantly looking back to the sort of past and sort of cinema's history and the fact you do obviously look back on the films that you've enjoyed coming up. And certainly one of the series which you yourself have uh, obviously had me revisit again would be the Scream franchise. Um, I mean, what was <laughs> it that made you want to go back and revisit Scream? Okay. I, it was kind of a random, out-of-the-blue occurrence because every year this blog, um, Cinefessions, puts on this horror movie watching challenge. Mm. Um, and my sister is a horror film fanatic. She loves movies in general, but she especially loves horror movies. So the, for the past four years, she's participated, which it's cool because um, we still live under the same roof, so I watch a lot more horror movies every June because I tend to watch things with her. So I saw some cool, other cool horror movies too throughout the month, but we were just trying to figure out a horror movie that she could watch. And I was scanning through Netflix and I saw Scream and I was like, you know what? I, I actually really would like to rewatch this because I hadn't seen it all the way through in so long. And the new MTV show, like the, uh, their, have the Scream show that just premiered, which I, I am going to watch just to see what it's like. But it kind of reminded me of how much I really, really like uh, the franchise. Yeah. And then after we watched the first one, Netflix automatically started the second movie. <laughs> like it, it did one of those things like it does between TV episodes. And I was like, oh, well, I guess we got to watch it. <laughs> so we ended up watching the first two back to back. Scream is one of those films where the more time that passes, the more you sort of realize how good it actually was. Um, certainly sparks that whole 90s horror period where you had films like Valentine, I Know What You Did Last Summer, sort of following in its wake. So it sort of, in many ways, revitalized the slasher franchise especially. And I was quite dismayed to, when I was looking through the uh, the MBDS list that we've got going for at the moment to see that we hadn't included Scream. So I've just added it onto our second list because looking back at it now, it can, it's just such an important horror film and it holds up so well. Uh, the sequels, not so much. I still enjoy Scream 2 and eventually I will get around to seeing Scream 4. It's just whenever I get to Scream 3, I'm just like done and just want to go and watch something else. <laughs> so, 
Well, I'll let you know what I think after I rewatch Scream 3 because it's been so long that I really don't know how I felt about it because mm. I watched it for the first time when I was pretty young and at the time I liked it, but it wasn't necessarily like, didn't leave a big impression. Yeah, I think one of my main problems with Scream 3 is the fact that, again, you have got the rules which follow, which is sort of like the backbone of the Scream franchise in itself where you get into part two and he's given like the rules for if you're in a sequel and then we get into part three and it's like the rules for if you're in a part three and it's like are there any rules for a horror movie because it's part three i think it's just anything goes really at that point you're lucky if you're not in hawaii or space by part three normally so but i have to uh thank you then jess for just obviously uh inspiring me to revisit uh the first two at least even if i can see the final two being a bit of a chore but i'll obviously i look forward to uh Comparing notes on to what you thought of three and four. I like the fourth one quite a bit, so okay. I hope you like that. Hopefully. <laughs> it, can't, it can't be any worse than pop three. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people generally like the fourth one better, but the fourth one I just think is a cool update. Like, it modernizes it and brings in all, like, the new horror movie rules. Um, and I think it has some fun twists and turns, so I liked it. Plus... You have to watch it alone. You'll see what I'm talking about when you watch it, but it just has one of my, possibly one of my favorite openings of any movie ever. Okay. Yeah. See, Maybe you, that'll you, pique your interest. You're really sort of selling it to me now. It's probably, <laughs> when we finish the podcast, because obviously it's going to be like two in the morning, but I'll be, be like on Netflix or whatever trying to find Scream 4 now. <laughs> it's going to be like when I watched, uh, watched the, recently got, finally got around to watching The Guest the other day. Um, which, for my money, is probably one of the most exciting thrillers, horror films of, I would say, the ease of the last sort of five years. And it's a it's a really nice entry to the mumble gore genre, while at the same time playing kind of like the Terminator, as directed by John Carpenter. But <laughs> if you, for anyone who follows my Twitter feed, you may have seen that there was a short period, I believe it was on Sunday, where there was a back and forth sort of argument erupting over analogies for what the best way to describe the guest. Um, but certainly it's one of those films I can't sort of recommend enough, really. And it's nice to know that there are still half-decent slashes being made out there and it didn't descend with Scream, so... Yeah, I was a big fan of The Guest. It landed in my top ten last year because I just thought it was really original and entertaining and I really liked the lead, Dan Stevens, in it. I hadn't seen him in anything before. I know he's in Downton Abbey, but... I have not watched that. I know that uh, Greg, the debatable podcast, he I think he described it best because he sees the guest as being Rambo if Rambo was a CK model. <laughs> um, That's pretty good. I do so like much. your um, John Carpenter slash Terminator description, though. That's pretty yeah. solid. And um, I think it was DJ uh, Vantino for the Simplistic Review. was uh, He calls it... Because it Halloween, if uh, Michael Myers was Jason Bourne. <laughs> so, so if you have seen the guest and want to share your analogy, please do let us know in the uh, comment section or drop it as uh, post it on the uh, Facebook page. Uh, if you look at Mad, Bad, and Damage Strange, you can uh, leave us your thoughts on the guest on there as well. But suddenly, it's a movie that sort of came out of nowhere. It was sort of had a minimalistic theatre release, and then suddenly you couldn't move uh, for actually people sort of recommending or wanting to talk about this film. Um, and it's nice that it actually lives up to its reputation, which was, was a pleasant place, because obviously when you go into film with these high 
sort of recommendations and a lot of hides around them. You've got this, always got this uh, predisposition to sort of be disappointed by what you see. So it's uh, nice to actually have a film that actually lives up to its reputation. So. Definitely. Which brings us in a way to our first film this evening. Uh, we're going to start by looking at uh, Nicholas Rohag's Don't Look Now. Again, another film which comes highly acclaimed. Uh, it's a horror thriller. The film released in 1973. Um, it stars Don as one half of a married couple who are grieving the recent death of their little daughter. And currently in Venice where they encounter two elderly sisters, one of whom is the psychic and brings warning from beyond. The film itself has become extremely noteworthy for one of for two things mainly, one being the incredibly graphic sex scene between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, and the second being for its ending. Again, the Don't Look Now frequently appears in horror top 100s, and this was my first time viewing the film. I know for yourself, Jess, again, this was the first time watching yourself, is that right? Yep. So, obviously, just wanted to obviously ask you, first of all, your opening thoughts on uh, this one. What did you think of it? I am so mixed on it, to be honest, because it was different than I expected. Because mm. I, I knew the the setup of the movie with um, Donald Sutherland seeing this girl who is wearing the same red raincoat as his daughter around the city. And I, I kind of expected it to be a little more about this mysterious figure in the red coat. But then there's this whole part with the sisters and the sort of um, supernatural elements to it and I kind of had to adjust my expectations because it's a little bit more of a slow burn almost than I was mm. expecting which I, now that I'm thinking about it it is like the, the 70s horror classic so I should have expected just as much of a slow burn as it was and I overall I think I did like it for sure but I was unfortunately spoiled by the ending of the movie, like yeah. three days before I watched it. Oh, three days before. Yes. It's, I knew what was coming at the ending, and I'll be lying if that wasn't part of the appeal in actually going into this one because of the of how it ends. For those who haven't seen the film, I'm going to try as best I can to avoid revealing the ending, so not to spoil it, because I think it's an ending that plays best if you do go in blind. Um, yeah, I think it would have more of an effect if mm, you had no idea what was coming. It's weird, but uh, it would certainly <laughs> be more effective if you, someone doesn't tell you how it ends. But again, it, like yourself, um, I didn't really like this one. I will be on, I'll be honest straight off the bat to say. Um, I didn't certainly didn't get what the hype's about and spent a couple of days after watching it to, like looking on IMDb and message boards trying to make sense of what it all meant and basically found the only answers being given Oh, you don't understand it because you're too dumb. Um, <laughs> Classic. Again, maybe, maybe I don't know. It's hard to uh, disagree with someone calling themselves Magnolia fan. <laughs> uh, the film itself is based on uh, a, a story by Daphne du Maurier. Again, I've not read the the story at all, but in many ways, the film has got that sort of his deals obviously with the death of a child, which again is normally something that's portrayed and it's normally quite haunting. And I was surprised to find that I wasn't overly affected by the opening death of, it, of the daughter. It's sort of, I don't know whether it's because of how Sutherland plays it, and in fact it's shot in so much slow motion, or the fact that there's no sort of impending dread of what, what's going to happen, because you kind of know already what's going to happen to the daughter. I mean, 
how did you obviously feel about the opening? I, I did like the opening. I, I did think it was a good setup for the movie, especially when you kind of pick up on things throughout the movie. But there, there was definitely some cheese. I was watching it with Rob, who also writes for French Toast Sunday, slash is my boyfriend. And he started cracking up from the start because it seemed like there was some really bad dubbing. Where oh. Donald, when Don, Donald Sutherland is like calling out and screaming in agony, and it does not sound exactly natural. No, and again, I can't tell whether this is because I'm I'm using uh, Antichrist as my reference point, uh, which again opens with the death of a, a child, and I found with Antichrist I had to stop the film after that opening sequence and like go away and sort of calm myself down for about five minutes just because it affected me that badly and again I don't know this is being a parent I find myself more affected by such things such as children being in danger or again the death of a child uh, than I would as a younger sort of film goer so but here it didn't seem to have the same sort of power as I've seen previously as you said it's it, it does feel like there's some weird sort of dubbing going on um, the fact we got do- Donald Sutherland in a curly toupee, again, it's really kind of off-putting. I know it shouldn't be, but you kind of... I was think I was more concerned over, is that his real hair or not? But And, again, there's so much symbolism going on. They've got, like, the paint going onto the slide, and you're thinking, well, this is the opening five minutes. Why are we bombarding people with this much imagery so, so early on? Yeah. It's definitely a very full scene. I, I think I liked it because it I thought it was kind of haunting. Just the way that like just seeing the girl and knowing what was gonna happen to her. Mm. Just like knowing what was gonna lead up to it and then I think what might have sold it to me was I really like the end when Donald Sutherland's holding her dead, lifeless body and Julie Christie just comes out of the house and like instantly like screams, like blood curdling screams. I like that part. Does that sound sick and twisted? No. I like Julie Christie's scream at the sight of her dead child. <laughs> I would say it's more that you're just resonating with someone's performance. <laughs> she's obviously, she's making you feel something, uh, which is always the important thing when you're watching anything. That Yeah. Whether it's the right emotion or not, it's debatable. But the fact that obviously that she as an actress is obviously give, making you feel something about her performance. <laughs> It made uh, me feel more than Donald Sutherland's uh, screams. That's for sure. It, Donald Sutherland seemed kind of lost in this film. And again, again, I don't know. That he's one of these actors where you see him play like a different role in something and you always refer back to him be, uh, playing a, an earlier role. And the whole time this was going on, in my head I was just like constantly playing his lines back from his appearance on The uh, Simpsons. And like where he's talking about microwave Johnny cakes, I'm like, why am I thinking of this? Am I this bored with the film that I'm now like putting my own dialogue into Donald Sutherland's mouth? (laughs) But again, he just seemed so lost within this film. It's playing up like a like an Italian giallo movie, but it's having none of the payoff. We have all these scenes where we're going around Venice, and we have like the sisters and their visions, and we have all these. Again, we have like random scenes where he falls off the scaffolding in the church, and none of it seems like know where it's going, like in the middle, until we obviously get to the ending where he's chasing uh, after what he assumes to be his daughter, the little girl in the red coat. 
So I was kind of lost in between, obviously, what was going on, and they tried to include this this whole sort of section where they tried to play it as if he's sort of like losing his mind. He doesn't whether you sort of made, trying to make you question what's actually real or not. I mean, did you? What did you think of the actual sort of plotting there? You mean like as he like when um, Julie Christie returns to England, but then yeah. he sees her in Venice. That would um, be, yeah, that would be one of the uh, one of the best examples, really. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely like, "What's going on here?" Like, it did. I think that did kind of pull me in a little bit more. I think it was like oh, the part, like tw- the twenty minutes before that, that I was kind of like, "What's going on here?" Like when his wife goes to back to the sister's apartment to try to make contact with their daughter. Um, and then from there I was like, mm, like I kind of just like wanted it to like pick up a little bit more at that point. But the, when he sees her, that's when I actually got a little bit more interested. Yeah. Personally. The plot has so many loose threads. I mean, we have reports to a serial killer at large, but again, nothing ever comes to that. We have <laughs> the woman being pulled out of the, out of the river. And again, they're played with such, as if they hold such importance, but they actually ultimately play no sort of important part to the plot at all. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was just like meant to be like a reinforcement of like the water and death and this he's seeing like this woman who was drowned in Venice and the sisters are warning him that there's danger and I felt a, a lot of like piled on sense of dread and like something bad was going to happen. It's a film I wish I could appreciate more, but at the same time, it doesn't grab me the way that I would have expected it to have done. Um, the fact that when this film was originally released, they were playing it on a double bill with The Wicker Man, and I can't help but wonder if this was like the B picture that they played before The Wicker Man, because it certainly plays like, it doesn't play like a sort of uh, well-respected sort of feature you would expect. Um, and again, I've heard a lot of people say that they had to watch a couple of times to sort of get it, but I couldn't see myself really wanting to return to this one again. Yeah, I don't know if I would go back and rewatch it, but I did read quite a bit about it, and it brought some things to light with the movie and made me appreciate it a little bit more, like talking a bit more about like the symbolism of the movie being about grief. Like That's like the main theme of the movie is how the two of them are dealing with their grief and how she's sort of starting to overcome her grief and move on and feel happier, but he can't let it go. And he more so is like funneling his grief into like anger. And that's kind of how, like what leads them to like the eventual end of the movie is that she's right. She, she's like ready to move on, but he still can't move on. One of the most controversial scenes in the film is um, it's a very graphic sex scene which appears around the halfway point and it's probably the second time that Judy Christie especially has been in sort of censorship for a sex scene, never been last tango in Paris. Interestingly this was sort of an afterthought. It was a film that, that the director only came up with prior to shooting um, and wanted to be also chose to be the first scene that they shot on the film. And it was the first scene they shot? It was. The first time Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie met for the first time on the set of the film, this was their very first scene that they shot together. Huh? Uh, and Nicholas Wright basically said they wanted to get out of the way and then move on to the bone of the film. Um, and of course, 
Julie Christie un- understandably was terrified the fact that here she is she's never met Sutherland before and she's now required to do this what? this sexing which for intents and purposes doesn't look like it's uh, a simulated sex scene at all the fact is that when this was shown by the BBC them them and their scissor happy fingers um, actually cut this scene all together and it's a really interesting scene to obviously see um, not only because of how graphic it is and obviously the censorship surround, issues surrounding it but the fact is that while it's going on we've got these cuts to the couple getting dressed which school gives it a off kilter feel I mean do you have anything to say on this this scene? So I thought the sex scene was good because it wasn't it was passionate but it wasn't I didn't think it was gratuitous because it really drove home the point that this was like the first time this couple was able to connect especially sexually since the incident with their daughter. So I felt like it was important to their characters. And I know this movie has a lot, gets a lot of praise for its editing because it has a lot of cross-cut scenes like this. But in this scene in particular, I thought it was kind of, it, I thought it was kind of disorienting because I wasn't sure exactly what what the comparison was supposed to be between the scenes or like what you were supposed to take away from the fact that it was cross-cut. But I did read that the cross-cutting helped them get their rating because it helped break up kind of like the more erotic parts of the sex scene. Mm. So that made me wonder if it was completely, or if that was the main motivation to do it, or if it really was like an aesthetic choice Mm. to do that. I mean, it's interesting, obviously with the comments you just made and like the relevance for the scene, um, certainly when I, sorry, because it comes out of nowhere. This, this scene and it's unsurprising the fact that it's either been cut or it's had all this sort of controversy around it. It's certainly Warren Beatty who was uh, dating Christy at the time. She, he wanted it removed from the film. Um, he was very un, unhappy with being there but again I like what you're obviously saying about that this is the scene where they are finally able to reconnect again. That they've been dealing with this grief for uh, for so long and then they're obviously able to find this connection again I again I can't tell whether it's of how it's it's cut and obviously with the two uh, pieces of footage sort of running parallel to each other that makes it so disorientating to watch but it uh, I feel it could have been cut down slightly I did feel a little uncomfortable watching it um, in case like someone just watched me and like wondered what when I'm watching like old porn or something but it's uh yeah it's it's it was pretty long it goes By on a sex bit. scene standards. And you're kind of watching it and going, is this simulated or not? Are we watching, like... Because obviously when you watch a film like Bayes Noir, that's again shocking because that is not simulated uh, sex scene. That is actual proper hardcore sex scenes that they throw in. And as we'll probably discuss in a later episode, that really sort of added to its normality at the time. But here, it doesn't seem like Rob was obviously going for that sort of normality just to sort of throw it in to get people riled up or to <laughs> get people in to see sort of see this film um so certainly obviously the way you sort of said about the scene about there is obviously about this connection it certainly makes a lot more sense than there when i saw it and i have to say with the ending i mean did did the ending make any sense to yourself like the very end of the movie the very end of the film yeah well i mean i didn't quite understand like i i i could take the ending more on like a symbolic level 
then of like what the hell it meant that this fig but the figure in the red coat i still don't understand what it means except on a symbolic level is what i'm trying to say Okay. Does that make sense without getting spoilery? I mean, if you want to, if tell you what, we will go just warn now that we are going to include spoilers to this film. So if you've not seen Donald now and would prefer to go and see it blind, go see it and then like pause this podcast, go see it and then come back to us. And we'll, obviously uh, you can join the discussion on this one. But yeah, okay, spoilers allowed. I mean, obviously we have this long sort of chase for the streets of Venice and he finally corners the figure in the red coat, only for it to turn out not to be his daughter, but some weird dwarf woman who then kills him with a hatchet. <laughs> it's certainly shocking. Um, I mean, uh, did you say that you hadn't been told of the, of the ending? I found out the ending. Okay, this is how I found out the ending. In the movie Me, Earl, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl... They, the main character and his best friend love films and they make all of these kind of jokey versions of films where they take a movie like, like Midnight Cowboy and they made their own version of it. That's 2.48 PM Cowboy. Like that's kind of the idea of it is they make like a joke of the title and then kind of like make their own version of the movie. Well, they had one for Don't Look Now and it showed the red coat figure turning around and then slashing the main character across the throat. Oh, God, that must have been, like, so bad to know that you're obviously going to be watching that film. I, yeah. And then we can just like, no, don't tell me how it is. <laughs> I know, because I knew I was going to be watching this movie, like, within the next few days. Yeah. So if I'd only watched this movie right before, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But I saw that, and I was like, okay, I mean, maybe that doesn't actually happen since they are kind of, you know, satirical versions or joke joke versions of the movie. Yes, but I was hoping, like, that probably happens. You're hoping that the crazy dwarf lady who, who I don't know what it's supposed to symbolize. This is the thing I've heard like previews that this is supposed to be like the symbolism. Uh, it's supposed to be like his daughter and that she's aged. But I'm thinking, well, not that much time's passed that for it to sort of age into this old woman. Um, yeah, I didn't see it that way. I saw, on a symbolic level, I could see it that his that his not getting over her death consumed him so much that it, like, you know, ruined his life, essentially, mm. and, like, killed him metaphorically. Yeah. Not that I think, like, it didn't happen or whatever, but I don't understand, like, a, I don't have, like, a rational explanation for this character. No, um, the only sort of explanation I can give is that the character we see is the serial killer that we hear in the police reports. That's yes, the only I, explanation I, I could give. That. I think that that was probably the highlight of, of this film for me, just the weird dwarf lady. It doesn't make any sense to me why she's there, but I was kind of glad that she was. Even if um, Sutherland really overplays his death scene. <laughs> I've never seen someone overplay a death scene the way that he does in this film, so... Well, one thing I did like about the movie was at one point the sister, the psychic sister Heather says that um, Donald Sutherland has, you know, he has the second sight too. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting because he's probably like seeing signs like he's getting like kind of having premonitions. And that reminded me of the beginning of the movie, how he sees the figure in the red coat in the picture. And then it kind of starts like bleeding and blurring because of the water. And to me, like, 
looking back, I was like, oh, that was a premonition that something was going to happen to his daughter. And then later he sees his wife on the boat, but it's really a premonition of her attending his funeral. This was something... It was only after it saw that. I mean, obviously the... Because uh, obviously his wife's there and, and the two sisters are on, on there as well. So the only one... I mean, certainly obviously discussing it with yourself now. I'm so glad that we decided to discuss this one rather than just leaving it to myself just to sort of sit down and write about it because certainly it's been a more enjoyable experience to discuss this film than it was to watch it myself especially because someone who obviously got all the symbolism which clearly went over my head here so but um if you, the interesting the german title of this uh, film is when die gondolin Trigon, which means when gondolas were grief huh so um it makes about as much sense as uh the title uh, that we have don't look now i again do you, is there any sort of meaning to this title at all? I mean, it reminds me of this one thing that I read. So I won't take credit that I thought of this, but I did thought, think it was very insightful. Is that water is like a big symbol for like his daughter's accident and everything. And a lot of times in the movie, like certain like things, like I think like a glass is spilled or whatever. And it kind of like reminds you of the drowning. And someone pointed out that even though he's tormented by drowning, he goes to a place where he's literally surrounded by water all yeah. the time. It was an unusual choice, obviously, if, if your daughter is just trying to obviously go to a city built on water. Yeah. Um, it, it's an unusual choice. Um, I'm just trying to think of another sort of situation where someone's got a phobia and then they go somewhere with that sort of phobia. This idea of going somewhere where you're having to face your, you're surrounded by what you fear... And again, for a couple that have lost their daughter, they're not overly sort of pining for a loss, really. They they seem to have come to terms, when we see them obviously in Venice, they, in many ways they seem to have come more to terms with the daughter's death. They don't seem as traumatised by the event as you would expect to see. Like at the beginning of the movie? I'd, just throughout the movie, I didn't feel that uh, Sutherland seemed, seemed as sort of like broken or as affected you would expect to for someone who has lost a child to be. Yeah, I guess the only thing that I... I thought, to me, I kind of saw him as a person who was kind of burying himself in work to, like, distract himself. Mm. And then whenever his wife kind of would say anything positive about moving on, he would always respond very angrily. Like, he was mad and he wasn't accepting of anything that was, that could be positive. If you got... Anything else that you want to obviously add to this one? I mean, again, for myself, it's, it's just a film that I didn't connect with on on any real real sort of level. It's really just one of those films, like so many films in the 1001 movies to see before you die list, that you just don't understand why it has its that has its acclaim that it does. Um, it's, it's not like if we were to like, name another horror classic, something like The Exorcist or The Omen or Sex Gentle Massacre, the films that have got this sort of legacy surrounding them, but at the same time are able to live up to this, the, the legacy and the sort of the weight of uh, expectation that comes with it. So with this film, I think it, it, I went into it expecting too much for myself, and I think that's where my downfall was. I should have gone in not expecting anything and hopefully got more out of it as a, a result. I mean, what's your sort of, uh, any other thoughts do you have on this one yeah I, I definitely enjoyed it more than you but at the same time it wasn't quite as revelatory as i was hoping it would be 
Um, and I also really wish that I could have seen it blindly so that I could make a more accurate judgment of the movie. Mm. But at the same time, it wasn't... It, it, I can see why people regard it, but I don't think it's like a must-see. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't tell anyone that they have to seek it out. For the viewing, if you do like uh, Don't Look Now, where would you go next with this one? Hmm. Well, this doesn't really have to do with it, but I just watched this movie recently, and it was another 1970s horror movie um, that I liked quite a bit, and it also had some stylistic direction. Um, and that was Sisters, which is by Brian De Palma. Okay. Have you seen it? I've yet to watch it. It is on the, the list, so eventually I will get around to it. Well, um, it, it also has to do with family dynamics, and but it's a little less of a slow burn. It, it picks up at the beginning, so uh, it might be a little more... It, it kind of hooks you a little earlier on, I would say, than Don't Look Now, but it's another 70s horror movie for myself just in terms of the styling um i'm just gonna have to recommend a couple of uh dario gento's Gianni movies uh, the first being deep red which i recently watched um and the second being bird with crystal plumage uh, probably one of his most respected and well-known works um, both have a very similar shooting style um which is sort of synonymous with the italian giallo genre um, and in many ways, it was these sort of films, along with like the, the likes of A Bear Blood, that would really sort of invigorate the slasher genre and give us films such as Friday the 13th um, and Halloween. Uh, these were sort of like the forerunners, but certainly in terms of how the film is shot and the look, then they are very similar to uh, Don't Look Now. And again, they're, they're, the, uh, they're, they're where I'm going to go with this one. Uh, mainly because I can't think of another film with a crazy dwarf lady wielding a hatchet to a sort of parents <laughs> to. They do come few and far between. <laughs> Certainly do. Um, but, I mean, if you got anything else that you would like to sort of add with this one before we put it to rest? Nope, I think that about covers it. Cool. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we return, though, we'll be looking at our second film this evening, uh, Terry Gillingham's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Listen to The Lair of the Unwanted on iTunes, and you can hear me, Jason Soto, use the F word. French? No. Fudge? Eh, sort of, but no. Frank? No. Fridge? No. Faruka Balk? Wh- what? No. Farfid Nugent? Jeez, no. Alright, what F word could you possibly be talking about? I'm talking about... In the layer of the unwanted, covering the movies you don't want to see and more on iTunes. And we're back. Uh, Stu joining me in the show this evening is Jess Manzo. Hello. I was in the first part of the show this evening, we looked at don't look now a film which safe to say divided opinions and one that thanks to jess i probably appreciate a lot more than i did going into it um before going to the second film this evening which is uh film Loving in las vegas i just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast i just stumbled across this week which is junk food diner um who celebrates all that's great about late night cinema and cult cinema in general 
you can find their podcast at junkfooddiner.com where they combine news as well as a trio of questionable movies, shall we say, uh, with every episode, but it's available now uh, where you have, you can find good podcasts, including iTunes and Podomatic. Um, or you can just listen to them directly via junkfooddiner.com. Um, but on to our second film this evening is Terry Gillingham's adaptation of the classic Hunter S. Thompson novel Fear and Love in Las Vegas. So starring Johnny Depp as the title of Titler Raoul Duke, um, here a representation of Hunter S. Thompson himself and supported by his attorney, Dr. Gonzo, here played by Benicio del Toro. Uh, the film again shows uh, it's a lot of uh, Terry Gillingham's hallmarks, really, as we combine surreal imagery while also being one of the few films that manages to successfully portray drug taking and the effects of psychedelic drugs on screen. Um, the film itself was a loss of the box office when it was originally released in 1998 but has since gone on like so many of Gillingham's films to generate a cult following and in many ways has led to because this led on to its being released by the Chris Horn collection um opening thoughts on this one Jess uh what's your thoughts on this one I really like this movie I thought that it was it was fun it was weird it caught my attention and was unique and I liked how much of the movie seemed completely ripped from what I imagined was direct dialogue and narration in the novel. It definitely had a very novelist feel to it, which I thought was perfect for a movie about a writer. Yeah. The film, um, the film is a very close adaptation of Hunter uh, S. Thompson's I would say he's probably one of his best-known works alongside the likes of Hell's Angels and Fear and on the Campaign Trail. This is probably one of his most accessible works that he did. And again, it was originally serialized in Rolling Stone. Um, the film itself, it sees Roald Duke, uh, the ultra girl, really, of Hunter S. Thompson, um, heading off to the Nevada desert to portray a cross-desert race called the Mint 400. Along the way, deciding to embark on a drug-filled, nightmarish trip across America, um, across America, really, just in search of the American dream or some twisted version of it. I have to obviously sort of highlight the irony here. Here is obviously a, a straight edge, uh, straight edger, promoting a film which not only endorses but embraces the joy of taking psychotropic drugs um, and just general bad behavior as we have these two characters and they go on this sort of destruction derby across Nevada. They trash <laughs> hotel rooms. They take a whole shopping list of drugs. I mean, they, I'm just trying to obviously see if we've got a list here of some of the drugs that they take. We've got mescaline, we've got acid, uh, they take ether. And as he says in the opening sort of quote that once you start a serious drug collection, it's, quite easy to push it as far as you can, which judging from the suitcase he carries around with him has certainly been pushed as far as anything that's been seen on film before. <laughs> but I was, I'm so glad that you did enjoy this. I mean, are you a fan of Gilliam's work in general? Um, I really like Brazil and I like the Holy Grail, but I haven't seen a lot of his other movies, to be honest, but I really want to because I've liked everything that I've seen so far. Okay. I, mean, I really want to watch Time Bandits and Twelve Monkeys 
and the Fisher King, I think, are the three that I most want to seek out first. Okay. I mean, Fisher King's the one that I've yet to make it all the way through. Uh, for one reason or another, I've, I've, the one time I tried to watch it, I don't think I was in the right place to watch it or whatever. I got about halfway through and, and stopped watching for whatever reason. So eventually I will return and watch The Fisher King. Uh, 12 Monkeys is, is fantastic. I've yet to see the TV series, so but the film version's great. And Brazil, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, for myself is like the missing Monty Python movie. <laughs> I uh, love Brazil. Certainly when you like look at scenes such as like the explosion in the restaurant and they're pulling the screens across and you're thinking, well, this is very Monty Python-esque. Um, here again, we have kind of that Monty Python-esque anarchic humor, um, but put through the lens of Hunter S. Thompson, which again makes it much more of a nightmarish thing to behold. Um, the fact that we're here, we have Gillingham, who has been constantly haunted uh, by his first film, uh, The Adventures of uh, Bam Montreskin, which again suffered a loss, and every film he's done has sort of suffered a loss in somewhere or another, but kind of made its money back when it's had DVD release. So the fact that he was taking on essentially an unfilmable movie is, I don't know whether it's to be admired or or what really when you see Gillingham's sort of approach to the films he chooses to make. But, yeah, I couldn't see how this movie people would doubt how it could really come to film because it's, I mean, I haven't read the novel, but I can just imagine that it's very, it, it sounds very trippy. Yeah. But the movie is very trippy, so I think it does a great job. I would say it's a, it's certainly one of the closest adaptations of a novel to a screen. I think the only other film I can think of that comes as close to adapting a film as close as this one does would be either uh, Silver Linings Playbook or Fight Club, uh, both which stay very true to their source material. And again, this does. Um, I have to confess, I'm again a, a big Hunter S. Thompson fan. Um, if I was to cite, obviously, the authors that got me into writing in the first place, then Hunter S. Thompson would be certainly up there along the like, likes of Brett Easton Ellis, Catherine Dunn, uh, Chuck Palahniuk. These were sort of like menstruation. So when I obviously haven't read Fear and Love in Las Vegas, and when you see the opening and it matches up how you expect it to in the book, and again, Johnny Depp is the perfect Thompson. He's absolutely perfect as his character, Royal Duke. And again, I don't know if it's because of the friendship he had with Thompson or just Depp's willingness to throw himself into any role. Just obviously looking at his performance here, I mean, what's your thoughts on uh, Depp's performance here? I loved it. It instantly jumped to the top of my favorite performances by him. Mm. Because he, he is great because he's so committed to anything that he does. But this is one of the really good examples of it. Where it's not like, oh, he's committed to like trying to be like weird without purpose like this yeah. is weird with a purpose and he, he his face is so visual and I, I thought he was great it's nice to see him doing something outside of the Bert, the Burton sort of canon yeah definitely he's been with Tim Burton for like I don't know how many films that they they did sort of in a in a row together but it's always nice to see him do do something similar outside of obviously Burton's vision of the world I mean Burton for myself sort of his sort of stopped becoming interesting really around the sort of late 90s, really. When he started ma becoming more mainstream and doing things like Planet of the Apes and Alice in Wonderland, he kind of lost his edge in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not it's nice to see that Depp's not 
reliant on Burton to obviously give these sort of performances. Again, as I mentioned already, Joe Depp and Huntress Thompson were very close friends. Uh, Thompson frequently refers to him in his books as being called, refers to him as being the Colonel. He was also responsible for doing uh, Depp's hair in this film. <laughs> they, because the story goes that uh, Joe Depp, to get more into character, went up to stay with uh, Thompson up at Owl Ranch. Uh, up in the mountains and basically he lived with him and studied his mannerisms and they actually traded cars for the film so the car you actually see the red corvette that you see in the film is actually hunter s thompson's car uh, johnny Depp traded him his porsche and uh, thompson went off to write fern loven in the taco stand about his adventures with that car uh which you can read about in kingdom of the lost but no um he actually shaved uh johnny depp's head in his kitchen while wearing a miner's hat <laughs> I, d- I mean, the, the story behind the making of this film almost as interesting as the film itself. Yeah, it you, it makes it seem like this film probably isn't even an exaggeration of this guy. Yeah, and it was so... This is, Again, this is the thing about Thompson is that you don't know, especially towards the end, whether he was trying to live up to the legacy of the wild man of gonzo journalism. Whether he was, as we obviously see him in, in like this film and... Uh, as he was portrayed by Bill Murray and where the Buffalo Rome and again by Depp in the Rum Diary. We see all these sides to Thompson and it's hard sometimes to sort of figure out where the fiction starts and where the fact begins. And just from the, the opening especially, it sort of hit, the movie hits full, full, full throttle really. It just opens with them sort of screaming down the, the highway towards Nevada. Duke's like believing bats are coming down on the car and you have that wonderful sort of reflection in his glasses of, of these bats like descending, even though there are no bats. The fact he's just there wildly like swiping at the sky with a fly swapper. And then when he stops the car and pulls away, we have a dead bat on the floor. The actual sort of drug taking sort of like the the delusions. I mean, how did you find like the, the sort of more trippy sequences within this film? I really like them. I mean, the worst one is probably the one with the really bad computer graphics which is just kind of like a function of the time. Like it's not, I guess it wasn't that avoidable, but I really liked um, the surreal elements of the movie. I really liked, um, especially, I think the one that was the most memorable to me is the hotel room at um, the Flamingo, I believe. Okay. And how it like, continuously gets more and more messed up and that I really like that I mean I'm and it's kind of like you're not sure what is like what's fake at that point and what is a delusion yeah it's 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 so again as I said that the when we first started this uh, discussing this film that one of the hardest things to show in film is drugs and in a way that Gillingham doesn't go for that sort of usual hysteria, hysteria sort of angle uh, with the film. He's sort of, I don't know if he could be like accused of enjoying the ride, whether he's showing, trying to sort of endorse in drug taking with obviously the trips we take, or do you think he sort of balances out by showing both sides of, uh, of recreational drug use? I think it depends who you are, because if you watch this and you want a completely bonkers experience 
then you'd watch this and be like, oh, shit, like, I need to find some mescaline. Like, I need to find something <laughs> that will provide me with this experience. But if you're like what I would think would be most people who wouldn't necessarily want to have a bad trip or to completely, like, mess up, like, their livelihoods by drug use, then they'd probably watch it and be like, oh, my gosh, like, this is a lot more entertaining to watch in a movie than anything that I would want to do. Yeah. And this, again, is one of the few movies where there is no repercussion for drug taking. This yeah. isn't like Train Spotting or Rec Room for a Dream. Yeah. You take drugs, you have this amazing height, and then you're going to be punished because you can't be seen having fun taking drugs. Drugs cannot be seen as something bad because this is deviant behavior. We must punish deviant behaviors uh, as the system works. But with Thompson's vision of it is that you can take drugs and you can somehow hold a career down, um, especially concerning the copious amount of drugs they consume over the course of this film. And the only scene sort of like fallout we see is the attempted suicide by his attorney. Ways obviously in the in the bathtub, wanting asking to be electrocuted, and uh, the aftermath of when they're taking the adrenaline gland, and it's basically somehow they managed to flood the hotel room. Every time this something seems like it could go terribly wrong in this movie, it doesn't. Like you're like, oh shit! Like he didn't get his writing assignment done. Like this is gonna really mess him up. But then, like a few scenes later, he gets a new writing assignment. Yeah. Or he gets pulled over by the police, like the cop, but then nothing bad happens from it. I don't know if he just has extremely good luck or or whether they just like sent him out there assuming that they weren't going to get anything back. Um, it, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, do you have a favorite scene in the film? I have a few. I really like the scene where Benicio, it, well, when Dr. Gonzo is um, losing his shit in the bathtub... And with the whole part with, like, Jefferson Airplane and him when um, Duke, like, throws the grapefruit at his head. It's just this, like, completely insane scene. But it's so well done. Like, it just keeps getting, like, the height, the scene keeps getting heightened. Like, it gets more and more manic as it goes. And I really like that scene. Um, And I also really thought the scene where um, they're sitting in at the... um, DEA convention when, like when they're in the conference room I think that w- was one of the most hilarious scenes in the movie for sure because you have the speaker saying this inane bullshit and you have Johnny Depp in the audience like trying to do drugs in a uh, auditorium of DEA agents mm. I, mean, I don't know if, you've, if you had uh, the talk in college or, or wherever where you have the uh, police come in and they've got the little box of uh, drug samples that, in like Perspex boxes that they pass around because it is so similar to that DA conference that he attends where they just like bombard you with all this like bullshit and you're sitting there thinking like I don't do drugs but I'm not I know for sure that no one calls a, uh, it a roach because it resembles a cockroach <laughs> and the fact that they portray dope addicts as like foaming at the mouth date rapists and the fact that uh, I love the scene where he's like commenting on the fact that he'll be prone to uh, frenzied masturbation when he can't find a rape victim. And he looks down and he's like scratching the stains on his trousers. It's these little shots I love in this film. Yeah. Um, the other shots I, the other scenes I really love is just any shot within the Mint 400 race. Uh, the fact that 
they go to shoot this race and they can't cover it as he openly admits in like any traditional sense because of all the dust that flies up. Yeah. And he goes off in the uh, truck and you've got these whip, these hillbillies that come from seemingly nowhere and they're actually shooting at the race and he's like, we're neutral, we're journalistic press. And uh, the other thing I love is uh, when the photojournalist like bombards in his hotel room and he sees him as like a Vietnam war report. And I think it's so true just from the photojournalists I've met, they are all that mad. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I did. I did really like the scene out in the desert. It's the problem I have with this film, though, and I don't, don't know if you felt the same. Is that it has this frenzied first half, and then really towards the as it's sort of gearing up to the finale, it kind of loses its pace. Where we're sort of hanging around in the desert randomly, it's sort of in a way that we've like committed so much bad behavior. We've been thrown out in a bar, and we've got to like kill this time so we can run out the. Uh, the runtime of the film and scenes such as when they're in the diner and uh, Dr. Gonzo offends the waitress by writing on the napkin uh, backdoor love and where he's just like randomly shooting guns in the desert I mean did you feel the film was sort of like losing in its sort of pace towards the end or it does kind of burn out a little bit because it's so high energy for so long and it's kind of a lot of the same thing so it's a lot of good of the same thing but it's still a lot of the same thing like a lot of drug use and like going crazy over drug use so i think at like the you know two-thirds mark it does kind of burn out a little bit but then it wraps up at the end well the film i think one of the other issues with the film is that you have all these wonderful set pieces but how Gingham tries to connect them, it doesn't always work. Like when we have like uh, Bazooku Circus, and it's just this incredible scene where, where as he rightfully describes it, this is what the world would be doing on uh, Saturday night if the Nazi, Nazis had won the war. And we've got like, I think, mean, is it Penn Juliet? I'm right in saying? I always get Penn and Teller confused. Um, yeah, Gillette. Um, and he's there and he's sort of like the Barker, he's like, trying to get people to uh, to pay for money so they, their image can be projected on a screen over the strip. Um, and in the book, it's more of a scene that's played played up. But we have, as I said, we have these wonderful scenes, but there's often times where it doesn't feel the new how to connect it. And in the book, it sort of has more of a flow because the way it's structured, you can sort of go from one scene to the other. You don't have yeah. to have this sort of connection. But, that kind um, of reminds me of, um, have you read On the Road? I have. It, it reminds me a lot of that, where it's like a lot of kind of like vignettes, and but you kind of have like the common like momentum of the story of like the traveling. But I've seen like I watched the movie that came out of On the Road a couple years ago, and that really struggled to like make that into a movie, where it had these like individual vignettes, and some of them were well done, but it couldn't overall really bring that book to life the same way yeah it's again this is always going to be a difficult film book sorry a difficult book to adapt um i would like to say this is this is a is a good adaptation it's hard to obviously without you obviously haven't read the book to sort of say whether it was or it wasn't i mean if you saw this film would it inspire you to look at other works by thompson or yeah, I think that I would enjoy the book, for sure. I'm, I might try to seek that out, actually. Um, it just seemed like... 
I, I think I would I would really like his style of writing. It's, I mean, Thompson's style of writing, I mean, it's unique to say the least. I mean, he sort of taught himself how to write just by writing and rewriting The Great Gatsby over and over again. This is how he taught himself how to write, how he learned the language. Um, the fact is he pioneered the Gonzo style of journalism, where, it's, where you tell a story by making yourself the center of the story. Within the case of the Mint 400, uh, obviously being covered, it, it is essentially the story about his journey to Nevada and obviously what they partake um, while trying to obviously cover this race. And I'm, I have to obviously wonder, I mean, there are some people who believe that this story is a work of fiction, that it isn't, oh, isn't a factual tale like Hell's Angels, where he obviously went on the road and lived and rode with Hell's Angels, and obviously that was a, a factual book. But I mean, would you say that this is a, a fictional tale, or would you feel that there is an element of truth in there? I mean, I guess it's hard to say for sure, but to me it definitely seemed like a lot of it could be real. Like, it's kind of fantastical, but I think that it could describe, like, someone's experience, but it might be on some level, like, somewhat exaggerative of the, um, of what might have really happened. But certain things I could definitely see happening, like, um, the scene where, um, Gonzo has the underage girl and they kind of send her out on her own and, like, leave her there. I could totally see that happening in someone's life, like, in real life. Uh, but then it's sort of hard to imagine, like, this suite at the at the hotel, like, really being, like, so crazy damaged like that. Like, maybe it w- could on, like, a certain level, but maybe not to that insanity. It's interesting what you mentioned about the, the girl, which, again, the attorney picks up. He always seems to, like, disappear and then randomly turn up with, <laughs> with these people. Um, the girl, Lucy, um, here played by Christina Ricci, and one of quite a few interesting cameos that are sort of scattered throughout the film. We have Cameron Diaz uh, shows up as a reporter. Um, Toby Maguire shows up as the hitchhiker at the start of the film. Um, And the shirt he's wearing, I really love because it's... uh, On there we have like a Ralph um, Ralph Steinman um, drawing of Mickey Mouse, which again was a nice throwback because obviously Ralph Steinman did all the illustrations for Thompson's book, so it was nice to see that little uh, little nod there. We also have Flea randomly turn up in, again, another of his random acting roles. Um, but for myself, being a fan of Aliens, Jeanette Goldstein continues to prove herself the human chameleon as she turns up as Alice the Maid. <laughs> so. um, also, Christopher Maloney as the receptionist. Yeah. I got a kick out of that one, for sure. Um, it, it reminded me of, like, him doing, like, Wet Hot American Summer. Like, he really has this really comedic side to him, but it just doesn't get out that often. Okay. I've still got to see um, Wet Hot American Summer. I've had all, all you guys in the States, like, recommend it. Because, yeah. Um, Chris, is it Christopher Maloney? Christopher Maloney? Who played uh, Stabler in, um, in Law and Order. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that was my own experience with with his character. So obviously, every time I see him, I'm just like, "Oh, he's like he's this guy. He's like a badass. He's like the tough cop." And then to find out he's actually in that role and doing a comedic performance. So yeah, it is really funny it. to see that see the the two sides of him. Mm. 
and it because um, it's also got a Nap- the Netflix series comes out soon as well for that one. Mm-hmm. So eventually, I will get around to watching it along with everything else. I think this is the problem when you kind of build this list of films to watch, and then you just kind of like keep forgetting to watch them. Um, the other sort of surprising cameo here is Gary Busey as the Highway Patrolman. Now, I forgot that he played him. <laughs> but fact- yeah, it, it is like a cool set of uh, cameos. I don't know if they'd be considered cameos at that point in their career. <laughs> Maybe Gary Busey, but these smaller roles. Yeah, and the scene where he asks, uh, he asks uh, Roduke for a kiss. And it, yeah. this was an improv line. And really? <laughs> yeah, this is. This that makes is, a lot of sense. And originally, Thompson didn't like it. I mean, Thompson had had a number of issues with the film, such as where they throw the change at the um, the dwarf waiter, for example. He didn't like that scene. But that particular scene where the highway patrolman asks for a, ki- a kiss randomly at the end of the scene, and we don't know if he does or he doesn't kiss him, which I always thought was quite amusing. He didn't like it <laughs> first, but he said that he watched it um, a few more times. He actually found it quite funny. But Gillingham, as soon as uh, Boosie pitched the line to him, he thought he was absolutely hysterical and threw it in there, so... Don't know what did you make of that scene? I mean, it's such a random scene. Well, they're also random, so it fit in. That's it was true. just like one more thing in a line of bizarre scenes. I mean, that way, do would you say that you sort of hit a point where you stop questioning what you're watching? <laughs> Probably. Like at the beginning, I was somewhat like surprised by certain crazy things, but then by the end, it's like almost like it's expected at that point like if something was normal then it would be weird i'm I'm very curious to know like which bit of the film you sort of checked out and it's like okay this is gonna be like an insane ride i'm just gonna roll with it <laughs> is there any particular was there any particular moment or was it just really from like the first five seconds of this film yeah because it, it starts out like it starts out at like full force so you kind of either have to like snap into it at the beginning or you're kind of not going to catch up, I feel like. Mm. Yeah, it's, I, I love the way this film has been shot, um, especially. it's There's so many little details, and it's not just the drug-taking sequences, but there's so many just little simple uh, sequences, such as when we have the scene where they're like, collecting the car and uh, the wine shirts and all, all these other bits and pieces, and you see the cross-country journey, and you see the they get caught up in a in a car accident and you see just like the guy who's like down the floor with the sheet over him just those little shots i just love uh gillingham's eye for detail mm-hmm. um and again when we have the scene such as we has the flashback to his youth and he actually sees himself sitting at the, at the table and he like he actually points out he's like oh there i am and yeah i love that um and that is actually thompson playing thompson yeah i it like really caught my eye when that happened so i like immediately like picked up my phone and i was like was that a cameo and i saw it was and i was like that is really awesome there i was i forgot there i am holy fuck (laughs) yeah it's so good the dialogue itself is there's so many little snippets of dialogue that i think this is one of those few books where it was fun just to go through it with a highlighter and highlight little passages to uh, drop into everyday life. I don't know if any of the dialogue sort of jumped out at you at all. It definitely did, but a lot of it was, like, so long, I don't know how well I could really incorporate it into, like, like, I don't know how quotable it would be. I mean, one of my, I love the, I think it's, like, one of the very last lines of that. 
And it's uh, there he goes, some high-powered mutant, one of God's personal prototypes, too rare for extinction, too unique for mass production. And that's uh, one of those, those little slogans I like to carry with me. But I would say if you're looking, I don't think there is a truer adaptation of a Thompson novel. Certainly the Rome Diary was a little misplaced. It sort of lost its sort of focus and was sort of more cashing in on the Thompson legacy and the fact that Depp wanted to do another Thompson project. Um, whereas where the Buffalo Rome seemed to be more caught up in the persona of Thompson than 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 this film. So I mean, if you wanted a, a truer adaptation of uh, a Thompson book, then uh, this would this myself would be would be it. Um, I mean, do you have any sort of further thoughts on this one? Um, I haven't seen the Rome Diary personally. Okay, it's uh yeah I I. T- I feel that I was sold sold a different movie by the trailer than the one I got. Was it tamer than a Hunter S. Thompson adaptation should be? It's certainly one of his tamer books. Um, I think it's more more the fact that it's more concerned with him drinking copious amounts of rum than doing doing other things. Um, again, it's I think for my money, Depp is he plays Thompson to an absolutely perfectly. And again, I don't know how much this is obviously based on the fact that. He was friends with Thompson. He took the time to obviously research and develop those mannerisms. And just the speaking style alone, it, it's just so hypnotic to listen to. Um, so it's, yeah, I'd say it's certainly one of his, uh, his gentler novels. I don't think it's one of his better novels, certainly. Uh, if you're looking for an entry point into Thompson's world, I think either Fear Love in Las Vegas or Hell's Angels would be so your entry point. And mm-hmm. His other books, it's more when you look at Fear and Loathing in America, uh, Generation of Swine, uh, Better Than Sex, those sort of books. They're more collections of correspondence and letters and sort of essays that make them sort of harder to get into. But there is a, a nice weighty tome um, of collected, which collects sort of the, the four books together. And um, it just like sort of like one big collection of uh, guns of journalism, which I can't remember the title of now, but the size of it alone, it's like reading a phone book. So it's one of those books I, I, I can't, you can't like take on a bus or something just because the weight of the thing is so weirdly. Yeah. It's very flimsy. Um, it's the sort of book you wish they produced in a hardback rather than this flimsy sort of paperback. Cause you think that when you get in the middle, it's just going to like split in two. So um, that's that's kind of my bedside table reading slash home defense system. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, I mean, I'm just sort of just looking at some of the directors who attempted to take this on. Scorsese tried to take this on. Oliver Stone again tried to take this on. Um, Oliver Stone would do a really like corny adaptation. I think he would think he could do it, but he couldn't do it. Okay. I mean, what's your feelings on Oliver Stone, sort of, generally? I don't know. Like, a lot of his stuff turns me off. Like, it just... It doesn't click correctly to me. Um, maybe I need to see more. Um, there's certain things I like. Like, I do like Born on the Fourth of July a lot. Okay. Um, but, like, for instance, I feel like this movie is... Like, Fear and Loathing would be similar to his movie um, U-Turn. Have you seen that? With Sean Penn? I haven't seen it in a while, so... I really didn't like it. Like, it's got... It also has somewhat of a manic energy to it, but less to do with the drugs, mm. and I think that 
it's what fear and loathing, his fear and loathing would have been like, but I really was not feeling it. Yeah, it's, I can't help but feel that if Stone was to take it on, that he would have done it in a similar sort of style to Natural Born Killers. Perhaps not in the, in like, by incorporating so many sort of filmmaking techniques and so many film styles as, as he did. Um, just It's just dizzying the amount of different film stocks that he chose to use within his adaptation of Natural Born Killers, even if he didn't shoot it the way that Tarantino had wanted. Um, and I, I feel that that would have been probably the way he would have gone if he was to shoot this film. Um, mm-hmm. It would have certainly been interesting to see how Oliver Stone shoots a drug sequence. <laughs> with someone like Gillingham, you assume, just obviously looking at what he was doing with Monty Python, like his animation, you assume that if he's not on the same street um, as 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 Thompson, he's certainly within the same area. Mm-hmm. They yeah. both have that sort of anarchic style. And again, another person who was wanting to do like an animated version of this was Ralph Bakashi, who did Fritz the Cat and Wizards. Um, and he also did the original Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've ever seen the animated version at all. No, I've seen like pictures from it. Okay. But... It only does the first two books um, and ends rather abruptly. Um, they never got a chance to do the Return of the King in there, but he's certainly, if we were to discuss sort of the major sort of American animation styles, we'd obviously have Walt Disney, Don Bluth, and then Ralph Bakashi sort of like the twisted step-sibling of those two. Um, as he was one who was sort of like seeing animation as a way to obviously tell stories and adult stories and obviously when you see things like Fritz the Cat and and Wizards where they have all this sort of shocking imagery I mean Wizards alone has like Nazi iconography and uses rotoscoping especially to create some really sort of twisted images so it'd be kind of interesting to see what he would have done but I think it would have been a much more nightmarish experience certainly not as light-hearted in many ways as Gillingham's version is yeah um I mean would you like to see Gillingham do another Thompson novel um, I think, I think it could be good, but I feel like some of his more recent movies haven't been very well received, so I don't know if that means that he's lost it, or that he just hasn't gotten his hands on really good material. Okay. I've yet to see Zero Theorem, so I can't comment on that one. I mean, where would you say he's sort of, like, losing it to? I'm not sure. I haven't seen the movies. I've just heard... Okay. I've just heard not wonderful things about them and I, I know Tideland again that was really hit and miss for a lot of people I really enjoyed Tideland um, same as Imaginarium with Dr. Parnassius so you like that? I really enjoyed it Okay. Um, I don't know whether it's because it's lighter um, and more fantastical than some of his other films which are sort of like more surreal uh, they've got this sort of sense that they're grounded in reality but sort of more surreal elements with the exception, obviously, like the events of Brown, uh, Munchauskin, and uh, Time Bandits, which obviously have that more sort of fantastical style to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's obviously when we look at things like The Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, and in a way, Film Love in Las Vegas, you've got that sort of reality style, and he's sort of tweaking it slightly. So, with the imaginary Dr. Panasius, it was having issues from obviously its leading man um, suddenly passing away which certainly affected the film, because uh, uh, Heath Ledger was right. shot, uh, shot most, of, most of his footage for it, and in the end they 
had to bring in additional actors to sort of fill it, fill it up. And in many ways, I felt that worked. When you have like people like Johnny Depp again coming back, um, I'm just trying to remember who would play the other ones now. Um, Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell and uh, Jude Law. Oh, okay. Obviously, and I I really liked. Uh, I felt they, they in many ways added to the film because they sort of each brought a different side to uh, the character of. To, yeah. to this character, they played like his different sort of sides, like his manipulative side, his seductive side. And I felt yeah, it, it actually always, made it. I was always curious about how that turned out. Mm. I personally felt it worked. Um, I don't know if I'm biased because it features Tom Waits, <laughs> who, um, I mean, the fact if he, whenever he turns up, I mean, I'm kind of more forgiving. Like the fact that he turned, when he turns up in like Domino, just really randomly. Um, Domino, if you haven't, you haven't heard, listened to it in the previous episodes, is my guilty pleasure in life. I don't think there is a greater <laughs> guilty pleasure in life than Domino. To seeing Keira Knightley try and act intimidating is just the funniest thing you will see. <laughs> but um, obviously, final thoughts on uh, Fear and Love in Las Vegas. Have you got anything else that you sort of wanted to highlight from this one? Um, Not necessarily. I just really liked it. I thought it was a really good drug movie. Of all the drug movies I've seen, didn't necessarily make me want to do drugs, but I would definitely recommend it, um, and I'll—I'm sure I will watch it again. Oh, and also, if you go to FrenchToastSunday.com and look for this movie, I wrote a drinking game for it after I watched it. Awesome. Um, and I think that it would be a lot of fun. I okay. mean, it—it it might be dangerous because there's a lot of things on there to drink for. Including, I think one of the things is anytime you see a drug or a drug is named. And that's just one of the things. <laughs> so, I think you would get pretty drunk playing this drinking game that I uh, cooked up. I, would, I mean, just the opening alone, you're going to be trashed. <laughs> that, was, that was my idea. <laughs> just like have everyone like die of liver failure. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it goes well with the movie to get completely just messed get up. more trashed. Yeah. I don't know if, if this film plays better uh, with a drink or not. <laughs> and this is the thing, because whenever I watch these films, I'm obviously Stone Cold Sober being straight edge, so I don't know if they play better if you've had a drink or not. But Yeah. And just obviously, let's see if we can... I mean, obviously, going through the shopping list we have at the start of the film, this is just obviously what we know is the carrying on it. So we've got two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered plaster acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, um, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, a quarter of tequila, a quarter of rum, a case of beer, a pint of ether, uh, two dozen arrows, um, and I think that's just about it. Um, but as we said, it's uh, not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. And the thing that worried me was the ether. There's nothing more... There's nothing in the world more helpless and irresponsible and depraved than a man in the depths of an ether binge. And I knew we'd get into that rotten stuff pretty soon. It's just so much fun to say Thompson dialogue. Yeah, yeah. It is so good. That's why, like, I wish that I could, like, quote this movie more. But, like, the only thing that I could easily quote but would never make any sense is, this is backcountry. <laughs> That's, like, the only line that I, like, oh, I could easily draw that out. But when am I going to bring that up? Whenever you're on a road trip, 
<laughs> I mean, every time I look on French Toast Sunday, you're always on a road trip somewhere. It's Next like time we're driving somewhere and someone wants to pull over to like get a coffee or something. I'll be like, <laughs> you can't. This is backcountry. That's what you need to do. Just like just <laughs> jump out and look around with like really crazy eyed. They might think I'm insane. It's possible. Or they might like recognize the reference. You know, you made a new friend. <laughs> or I'm trying to think of the other good one. I think the only other one that's sort of coming to mind here is uh, when he's use, using the curtain rod as a spear and he's like, don't fuck with me now, man. I'm Ahab. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got a lamb, we've got a lamb meeting coming up, so I don't know, maybe well, that one will come in handy somewhere. You and like. I should, like, rehearse all these lines, and then we'll just, like, talk in Hunter S. Thompson-isms, <laughs> and people will think that we're insane. Okay, that's what we'll do. We'll get Hawaiian <laughs> shirts, and we'll just, like, spout these, this dialogue of it random. You have to shave your head, too. I can do that. <laughs> I can... I can, we'll get we'll, maybe that's what I do. I mean, it's part of the many like things that that keep coming up that when, when we're talking about the land meetup. And I think someone uh, said that we should recreate the opening of that '70s show, which I thought was pretty <laughs> awesome. I don't know who's going to be who yet, so that's uh, yet to be discussed. But that's what we do when we're we're just quote random uh, and love and dialogue at each other and see who sort of vibes off it. Um, further viewing, uh, where, where would you go next? Okay, I was thinking about this, and I feel like the obvious one would be a movie like Train Spotting. But okay. I feel like everyone has seen Train Spotting. So you're going I don't the, know if I'm. Hmm? You're going the responsible route. <laughs> um, another movie, though, that is about drug use that's like slightly darker than this, but also pretty trippy, is this movie called Spun. Okay. Um, have you seen that? I have. I love Spun. Yeah. You what? I love Spun by uh, Jonas Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it's definitely weird. I, I think it's a bit darker because not that Fear and Loathing, not that the drug use in Fear and Loathing is glamorous by any means, but it's more zany. While in Spun, it's a bit more, bit more like, oh, like people on meth are kind of scary. But it's got like a cool energy to it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you get to see... Um, is it Jason Schwartzman? Yeah. Um, the fact that his girlfriend spends the whole movie handcuffed to his bed. Yeah. Um, which is just really random. And he seems like such a nice guy, but he does these weird things. Um, and he also features John Legismo as Spider Mike, um, who, again, has always got such a good energy, but here he's just off the charts, just like yeah. hyper. And he gets, you get to see him hang around shirtless in leather pants, so... You know, something for everyone. But uh, yeah, I understand what you mean. It's, the fact is that I don't know if it's glamorizing meth meth heads or what, but it's uh, it's certainly as zany as this film, I would say, if not more. The fact that you 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 suddenly find your new cinema best friends are meth heads. For myself, if you wanted to look at some of the little more more trippy sort of filmmaking, um, then you can look at the Jack Nicholson scripted and Peter Fonda starring uh, movie The Trip. Also worth giving a look is uh, the Monkeys movie Head, um, and finally, just for just the sheer randomness of it, um, would be to look at Altered States, uh, just again for more so trippy, trippy uh, sort of visuals there. But certainly, this is a film which does reward and repeat viewings. Um, there's just so much, so many details within the film. There's so many ideas being thrown out. I don't know if it's possible to sort of take it all in in one viewing. Um, 
just the dialogue alone, as we've said already, it's just fun just to read through the scripts and take bits of dialogue from this film and just like take the film apart and look at it that that way. But uh, yeah, this is one I would certainly recommend Hunting Out. Whether it's an entry point for for Gillingham's work as it is for Thompson's is hard to say, but this is a, a pretty fun ride to all the same. Yeah, it's like we watched one movie that's a slow burn and then one that's like freaking like <laughs> the burn of TNT, like complete opposites. But uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's certainly been fun discussing uh, these two to this evening. Um, before we obviously wrap up the uh, show this evening, uh, if people obviously want to uh, see more of your work and uh, and uh, follow you, where's the best place to find you, Jess? You can. Find my writing at FrenchToastSunday.com, or you can listen to my voice on the French Toast Sunday podcast. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter if you want to. Um, my Twitter handle is Jess underscore FTS. But I mean, just like if you want to. Yeah. You know? It's good. You shouldn't be so down on I'm not the most prolific tweeter, but you can still follow me if you want. No, the French Sunday podcast is certainly in my rotation. I'm trying to remember which episode it was. I believe it's episode 239. I would especially recommend just for the skit you did on the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I was listening to it in the doctor's office, so suddenly burst out laughing at that part. Probably wasn't the best time, but... Oh my gosh, I hope you weren't seeing a therapist. No. I hope it wasn't that kind of doctor. <laughs> that wouldn't no. sound right. It would just be randomly cracking up in the waiting room. <laughs> But um, no, the thing I love about your the the your show over on the French Show Sunday is the fact that there's there's always at least one or two bits that would just like absolutely made me laugh out loud. So, well, good because we're afraid that we're only making ourselves uh, crack up. But it's always nice to hear that uh, every once in a while we make other people crack up too. If it makes you feel any better, I actually preferred your version of the Breakfast Club. When you did the live script read on episode 235 to the actual real Breakfast Club. That is just madness. I, as we covered in the previous episode, I am not a fan of the Breakfast Club. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's just awful. Um, I know that <laughs> on a future episode, I will be sitting down with Jay to discuss it. We're going to be doing it, pairing it up with Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Um, okay. So it's going to be one movie he's going to hate and one movie I'm definitely going to hate. Awesome. So uh, that's going to be I'll fun. Definitely to... be tuning into that. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if he knows what he's let himself in for, but it's it's always fun to expose uh, someone I consider to be more of a mainstream blogger to something a little more off the cinematic beaten track. But again, that's what we like to do here on the show. So. <laughs> but thank you, uh, Jess, for obviously coming on again and uh, picking the two films that you did from the list. Um, as always, we hope that we get you back soon for another episode. Oh, of course. I'd love to. It gives me a great excuse to watch movies that I've been meaning to see for a really long time anyway. And then it's always nice to be able to talk about them, too, especially movie like Don't Look Now or something where kind of you need to talk about it to really, like, figure out how you feel about it. Yeah. Oh. Well, again, Jess, thanks for coming on. And uh, as always, you can find... If you missed any of uh, Jess's details for French Show Sunday um, or her Twitter feed, you can find it in the section below. Um, but again, thank you, Jess, for coming on the show this evening. And again, it leaves me with nothing else to say, but uh, remind you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs>